Well, now I'm going to invite the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Draper to the stage. <laughs> I guess like we have like four reverends in the congregation and I'm not one of them. So <laughs> Seeing how long I can keep that up for. Uh, I don't know, should I, I'll introduce you and then I'll give you a moment to like correct me, I suppose. Marilyn was a, uh, a professor at Wycliffe when I was studying there and one of my favorite professors. And then she moved to Tyndale where she was one of Laura's favorite professors. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Laura. And <laughs> she's since moved to Toronto and has been coming out and showing up in this community. And I have been uh, so grateful. Uh, sorry, to be clear, I then started kind of bugging her when she was at Tyndale because I'm like, oh, it's just around the corner. So I kind of turn up and be a nuisance in her classrooms and stuff. Uh, but she put up with me long enough. And then when their family moved to Toronto, I said, come to Wellspring in a desperate plea. And they listened. So there you go. That's why you should all tell people to come to Wellspring because sometimes they do. <laughs> and then sometimes they stick around. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Marilyn? <laughs> I think that pretty well sums it up, except that it's been really good to be here. It's been nice to be welcomed in. I'm actually on sabbatical this fall, um, so it's been nice not to have to preach and, and take, I've been able to say no to things and been able to um, to be a little bit more focused in my reading and my study and be a part of a congregation instead of speaking somewhere. So that's been a really nice treat. And then, of course, I broke all that by asking her to speak this morning. So, in my defense, Marilyn came up to me about a month ago and said, I keep on noticing this theme of worship in Exodus, and I can't get over it. And I said, well, you know, if you want to have a conversation about it at the front of church. Um, so I was very careful about not asking Marilyn to preach, but now here we are. So. What was happening was, as I was going back and reading through Exodus, I kept seeing worship show up everywhere. And then I was reading other parts of scripture, I was finding Exodus was there. And so I kept coming across this theme everywhere I looked, worship, worship, worship. And I thought there's no way that we can leave the book of Exodus without having spent a little bit of time talking about this idea together. And just to be clear, I was just going to rant about idol worship for 30 minutes today. So fortunately, we've got a much more uh, robust and thoughtful conversation uh, with Marilyn. Do we, have, like, a specific, do we have a specific scripture we were going to roll out from? I feel like there were a few. but Yeah, we talked about um, sort of centering our conversation today in four different passages, um, but... Maybe we'll make reference to them sure. as we go through. Maybe at some point, I think it's important that we do pull out and, and read one of them. So we'll, I think so. <laughs> so um, we'll... Um, Perhaps you could give people just a little bit of background as to why this is something that comes up for you. Uh, we were talking about your uh, PhD and kind of what came up on those conversations, which I think is, is fascinating, I think illuminates both this conversation and it illuminates uh, your passion for it, I suppose. My dissertation, I started because we'd been in church planting and ministry and had often felt like failures. And I was really wondering about success and failure and ministry and what that looked like. And so I started thinking, I'm going to write about how to do a successful church plant in Canada. But what it turned into was, what's God's responsibility and what's human responsibility? And time and time again, I came back to, I'd, take, I'd follow a lead to something and come, oh no, that's God's responsibility. 
God's responsible for mission. God's responsible for bringing forth his kingdom. God's responsible for building the church. God's responsible for this. And I thought, well, okay, what about us? And then I thought, well, our response is worship. We get involved in worship. But you know what? God's responsible for that too. So it was the day of my dissertation defense, and I had all the examiners in the room. And one examiner is asking me a variety of questions, and then he kept saying, but what are we supposed to do? But what are we supposed to do? Surely we're supposed to do something. What do you want us to do? And I realized what we often do is we get mixed up between responsibility and action. And I think what we come back to in the book of Exodus again and again and again is God is responsible. God's the one who takes the initiative, and God's the one who will see it to completion. However, we get to do some stuff along the way. We get to participate in what God is doing. We get to draw attention to who God is and what God's up to. And so that, I think, is something that's just been on the back of my mind a lot lately, is that relationship between responsibility and doing things. And we covered quite a lot in Exodus over the past few weeks. So what is it that kind of jumped out to you? Where are the kind of parts where you think that God is taking the initiative there? I think you see it right at the beginning mm -hmm. of, of the book of Exodus. You're, you're involved in a picture, and yet you're recognized right away, okay, there's been something going on behind the scenes, God's there. And that immediately takes you back into Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, you have Abraham being called out, and God tells Abraham, I'm going to create from you a family, a nation, a group, a people, my people, and you're going to be a light to the nations. You are going to bless the nations. That's going to be your role. But then in Genesis 15, he says, however there's going to be a little bit of a glitch in the story. And the glitch in the story is that your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years. So this has been established for, for years and years and years, for centuries. And now we come to the beginning of Exodus. And so there's a sense among the people that this has got to be time. We've got to be getting close to this time. And you see all the women in those early stories that we talked about. They're ready. They're watching. They're, they're getting ready to participate because they're recognizing it's not a dichotomy of, you know, um, and or, right? We can, God does it or we do it, but it's a both and. God's working, but how are we going to join God in what God's doing? And so right at the beginning there, we see God taking the initiative. Well, then, of course, we see a lot of different things happen, um, and Moses is off in the desert, but then we see God taking initiative again. And at the burning bush, God, uh, Moses encounters God, who's there, who's present, who's taking action, and who's now got a mission for Moses to be involved in. God's going to take the responsibility, but Moses is invited to get involved and participate. I think one of the things that's interesting that we see in Genesis especially is the places that become... Uh, holy or remembered are those places that God and humanity has had these encounters. Like these are the things we remember. Um, 
I just learned what Ebenezer was recently, so I'm very excited about this. But like an Ebenezer is literally like a stone that you put down to remember that God was present. Um, so we see these times, and I know you've talked about thin spaces as well, where that, that space between heaven and earth is, is so thin, uh, where humanity and God are, are fully experiencing one another. Um, and we see that at a few times throughout the Old Testament uh, in Genesis, but possibly most Moses at the burning bush is the clearest example of that. Yeah, and then from, so this idea of thin space, we often pick it up from Charles Taylor, and he's done some work on what does it mean to be a Christian in a secular space? And he says, even now, so in Moses' day, the people were very conscious that there were powers and, and supernatural things at work, but we are often in a thick space where we're not aware of those things. And yet, just as the people in Exodus encountered God, Charles Taylor invites us to those thin spaces as well. And so looking at something like Exodus gives us an insight into, okay, what might a thin space look like? So obviously, in Moses' case, there was a bush that was burning and wasn't It's like a more consumed. obvious thin space. <laughs> and so, but Moses went aside to see what was happening, and God spoke to him. But then if you follow the stream of thought through the book of Exodus, you see it again. Obviously, in the plagues, God showed up. God showed different aspects of his character. And then you have the people going off into the wilderness and, and camping out at the bottom of the mountain. And there God shows up with rumblings and thunders and power. So that's another case that God shows up. But then a little while later, Moses is taken off to the cleft of the rock. And God shows up very quietly and unobtrusively. And so you see, all through the whole book of Exodus, God showing up again and again and again, but in different ways. And we see different aspects of God's character based on that. And I think that's, that certainly should be encouraging for us today as well. I know that when I was first, I don't know, getting into Christianity or whatever we could call it, is that I, I, don't know, I went to a Delirious concert, and which is fine. They're a you know, Christian rock band who are great. I have no problem with them. Um, but it was very clear that other people there were having a much more like spiritual or worshipful experience than I was. So I was like, well, I guess I'm broken then. Uh, <laughs> but I think hearing things like this, like, no, it's, it's really apparent that God meets different people in different spaces. Do you agree? <laughs> I do. Excellent. I do very much. And it's not and it's not just the place, but there's also different ways of, like time was another thing that um, came up in the conversation that we had. That not only does God show up in different places, but God shows up with different understanding of time as well. And we see this really clearly when the people are still in slavery. They're still being oppressed, they're still in Egypt. And they're told, you now have to produce the same number of bricks, but you don't have the resources to do it. So your time. And suddenly they become very focused on the moment, on the temporary, on the trying to find resources. Um, and they go to Pharaoh to try to find a solution. And, and Pharaoh says, but you're lazy. Um, and, and he really questions their identity. And... What God does is God says to the people, okay, not only am I going to change your place, but I'm also going to change your understanding of time. So instead of being so focused on the temporal, you're now aware that I actually work in this eternal sense of time. And that can be something that we face as well. Not only are the places 
that we're encountering or trying to encounter God different as throughout the week, um, but also the way that we're looking towards time, and we get caught up in the temporal. And so these thin places allow eternity to step in as well and give us a little bit of a different eternal perspective, that God's got something in mind, or God's on a different timeline, perhaps, than we are as well. well that can be very difficult for us as well, I think. Um because sometimes it can feel like a cop-out. But I think I want to keep coming back to this, this idea and this frustration that that professor had. It's like, but what do I do? And if you're in this congregation thinking, but what do I do? That's kind of where we're going to leave you as well. Like, so you might not get a concrete answer out of that, but that's kind of the point that we want to move to this place of, of relationship and experience over, over action, I suppose. Um, not to say there isn't space for that, uh, but making space for God to do what God does. Uh, it's interesting there, even with the bricks, you say, like, they go to Pharaoh instead of God. Well, that, how did you think that was going to end up? Like, <laughs> weirdly, your enslaver hasn't treated you particularly well. We should have, you know, maybe we should have seen that one coming. Do you think, James, that's because they, they have, they've been in slavery for so long, they really have completely lost their identity. They don't know who they are as the people of God. And the Pharaoh's the one who's been calling the shots for the last while. So, of course, that's who you go to. And it doesn't even occur to them until Moses comes along and reminds them, say, oh, yeah, you know, there are other options out there. And that can help us as well. We do. We, we get thinking a certain way. And that's where um, our involvement is as the people, as the people together, asking one another questions can really help us to say, oh, yeah, you know what? Maybe I need to step back, and the church congregation will help me to step back and see my situation a little bit differently. Yeah, so that speaks to kind of community and <laughs> making space to listen to one another as well. That's, I think, another place where we see um, Exodus is a little bit different because there's very much a communal mindset among the people, and we're in a secular and individualized space. So we often think about worship as between God and I or um, my, 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 my relationship with God. And we forget about the whole people aspect. And yet, if you read through the story of Exodus, the people, the community aspect comes through time and time again. And we could make all sorts of connections to that in the church. But I suspect we'll run out of time this morning. <laughs> we are also conscious. Yeah, I'm looking. We're, we're going to go through our points here, realizing that we have. Uh, also, there's a like quick interlude. I went to Marilyn's to talk this through on Wednesday. And she printed some stuff out. And point, point one was point one A and point... 1B and point two was point A, sorry, point 2A to point 2W. That's right, there were that many points. So. <laughs> An incredibly thoughtful woman uh, is Marilyn. I, so I think that kind of blends into our next point quite nicely. Uh, that the Israelites' expectations is, is incomplete. They sort of think, you know, not only I'm going to go to Pharaoh and hopefully get an answer, but even the idea of like what worship might look like doesn't feel quite as wonderful or even that idea of encounter. Um, one of the things that Marilyn pointed out to me is if we read the book of Exodus, it really seems like Moses is just fighting so the people can have three days to worship in the desert. That seems to, and of course I look at it because I've watched The Prince of Egypt or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 he's fighting for complete liberation. But actually the request is let my people worship for three days in the desert. And so actually the weird things that happen after that make a lot of sense when you think they were just expecting to worship for three days in the desert. 
Yeah, when you think about it, so the people have this expectation, we're going to go for three days and have a big party. (laughs) But the first thing that they encounter is a wall of water. So God, fortunately, makes a wall through the water or a way through the water and they can cross the Red Sea. Well, then they encounter that there's no water to drink. So God provides the water. Well, then they encounter no food. So God provides the quail, the meat and the manna. Well, then they, then they get encounter um, where there's, there's, no, there's no justice, there's no structure, there's no system. So then Jethro comes along and helps Moses create a system, a system of, of families and a system for justice. And then the Ten Commandments are given. So now there's a system of law, but this is a, a law that's all about protection and provision. It's not, it's not we're going to keep you from doing all these things. It's a, this is a way to live together in unity and harmony. And so now it's at this point that the people, it's been three months, and the people still haven't had their three days of party. So now, by now, we're up to Exodus 24, and there's been a covenant made between God and God's people as a a community created. Um, But what does Moses do? He disappears. (laughs) And he goes up into this mountain. And it's this mountain that's a thin space. It's got rumblings of thunder. There's obviously power there. God's there. But Moses is gone. And so the people have decided this time thing again. Okay. Time's up. It's time for us to have our party. And so they plan their days of party and celebration. But what do they do instead of saying, hey, you know what? Our relationship of worship all along has been growing because we've been in God's presence and God's provided water and God's provided food and God's provided a system and God's provided community. They forget that. And they say, okay, we need somebody who's going to give us a real party and they create a golden calf. And that party gets wildly out of hand. And that's where the idolatry piece comes in. So James, do you want to comment a little bit about idolatry here? I mean, and I, how the people take the matters in their hands that they really start to do stuff. Yeah, I, I think the, so the golden calf story is particularly interesting. And someone I was reading earlier in the week was talking about idolatry. and. There are two problems of idolatry. One is that we've replaced God. That is obviously problematic. But the other problem is that the idol we've created is now problematic instead of just being a beautiful thing. So a golden calf could have been this testimony to craftsmanship, the beauty of gold, the work that had gone into it. Like it could have been this great and we could have said, and we've done this thing because we know that we too are created and we too are beautiful. But instead of appreciating it for what it was, they made it an idol, they made it a god, and then it becomes problematic. So Idols are problematic because they rob both creator and the created of their rightful space. And that's a problem. Uh, And I think, yeah, again, we see... But what we're seeing there, I think, is that when we see the worship that they are part of in the desert, in these thin spaces and encountering God, um, Marilyn, you used this... Uh, expression of worship being the privilege of being in God's presence. I really like that, the privilege of being in God's presence. 
So they've had the privilege of being in God's presence over and over and over again, but as soon as they don't feel it as immediately, they revert to the kind of worship that they saw in Egypt, where there would have been statues everywhere, where there would have been gold everywhere, where there would have been all of these wild parties everywhere. So I think there's something about that too, that when we kind of neglect that thin space, we tend to go back to the things that we know that might not be helpful and certainly aren't worshipful. But I, I think the text itself even shows the problem when, when we take responsibility for our own thing. Because it's interesting when God tells Moses what's going on. Um, so this is Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. So suddenly God is dis distancing himself from the people, and that's partly because he's created a covenant with these people. And by choosing another God, they're saying, God, we don't want you anymore. You're not our God. So God can't call them my people here. So he's saying, well, your people, you're still identified with them some way. So I'll call them, Moses, I'll call them your people. But then he says, it's all about them. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They've cast for themselves an image of a calf. They have worshiped it. They have sacrificed to it. And they've said, these are your gods. And so see how the people have taken ownership. It's all about them. And they have totally forgotten this God who's been providing for them all along. I think this is we can read Exodus 32, and it is quite a challenging piece of scripture, but for me, at its uh, best, <laughs> or at my most generous, or my most toning it down so that I can cope with it, I suppose, is ultimately this is God honoring God's promises. God says, you know, you'll be my people and I'll be your God, but we know now God doesn't force God's self on anyone. That's not who God is. Uh, God says, of course, I want you to be my people and I want to be your God, but I'm not going to force this on you. This is, this is up to you. So if you choose to you know, run away, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor that. Now, I think things do change a little bit with Jesus, and we'll get to that in a moment. But I think early on, this is just an example of God saying, hey, this is the promise that we made. And all you have to do, I think this is the other thing too, is like, all you have to do is be my people. Like, I don't want all these we can get into sacrifice, but God basically says, I don't really need sacrifices. I don't need these things. They're for you. They're not for me. All you need to do is be my people. All you need to do is enjoy that privilege of my presence. All you need to do is, is sit and wait with me. You, know, there's, you don't need to build statues. You don't need to do these things. You just need to be present. You know, that's the worship that I want. And yet they still weren't capable of doing that and and probably a warning or at least a, a reminder to us as well yeah just to build on what you were saying there james about how um god doesn't force himself on us in some ways that's the advantage of the thick place if if all our places were thin and god was just there that would be too much for us that would really overwhelm us we wouldn't be able to do anything, right? God's, God is holy other. That's what it means, right? Holy. Um, holy good. Holy light. Holy life. God is beyond our imagining, beyond our ability to cope with. And so to a certain sense, there needs to be a buffer, right? If, if God was just there, yes, there would be no choice. We would have to worship God because God is God's. And so God, by allowing some thick places, allows us to choose. And what God does is he shows up in the thin places 
with enough of a hint for us to be there, but it still allows for us the freedom. We're not forced to choose that God is God, but we're invited to come and be a part of who God is and what God is doing. And so that's just part of, of God, not of, of God cre- creating us with freedom as well as with um, that invitation to come and worship. So moving through the Exodus story and thinking ahead to Advent, where maybe the thinnest space ever where we, we experience in the life of Jesus. Where, where do you th- see those things weave in? Because one of the things I enjoyed most about our conversation is actually how interconnected all these pieces are. That's where a lot of the ways that Passover, I think, ends up becoming foundational for, um, for the New Testament. Um, did, did you want to talk about something else? Or would this be no, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Talk about yeah. Passover. <laughs> So, of course, Passover is that day when God's judging angel passes over the Israelite people. And you see God as a God of perfect justice, but also perfect mercy. And so the people are passed over, and then they pass through the Red Sea. And this then becomes a festival later on in in Israel's um, development as a people, where they do every year have a week's festival celebrating the Passover. And it's very significant that here we have Jesus. Now, Jesus is this perfect combination, perfect God and perfect human, who fulfills all the requirements that, that Israel was to set up in order to be a light to the nations and a blessing to the nations. So in Jesus, we have this amazing combination of divinity and humanity. And Jesus goes through his ministry of sharing, sharing words, sharing stories, healing people, proclaiming God's kingdom and then choosing to die. And of course, we could spend our whole time and just on the significance of that. There were two pages on that, by the way, in case you're wondering. (laughs) But Jesus' death is significant. And, And it's interesting. He chose the day of Passover. He chose that as the celebration. He chose that as the time when God is gonna bring delivery and freedom for God's people. And that's the day that he chose as the day of his death. And I think that that then becomes the fundamental part throughout the rest of the New Testament, that whenever there's references to to our worship times of worship together, the sacraments that we share, right? When we have communion together, we're told to look back and remember Jesus' death at Passover. Do you want to fill in what there's, there's so much. I'm, I'm all, it's also very exciting to me. I, and it's then seeing ultimately the way that Jesus changes things. I think we were talking a lot about, yeah, Jesus brings this new covenant. So even those, it's interesting because when we, I think when I look at the Old Testament, it can be easy to look at God as being a bit angrier than we might be used to or having a lot more rules than we might expect. But actually when we, when we understand that, it seems to be God going like, okay, well, I just keep my promises. Like, that's all this is. Like, there are consequences to choices, and, and I want to be someone of my word. Uh, but with Jesus comes a new covenant, and it's a, a new way of doing worship at all, and there is more freedom now. Uh, 
Again, I mean, this has all kind of come back to us talking about worship, and I think, and we are very appreciative of the music that we have at Wellspring, and so thankful for uh, the people, but we'll call them worship leaders, uh, when I think that is quite a small part of what worship is, which is kind of what we're trying to do here is blow it out, and that might be you'll get to that point where you go, but what do I do? And then we go, yep, that's... <laughs> yeah, often, one of the courses that I teach is on worship. And one of the ways that we'll often start the first le lesson is, what do you think of worship? How do, how do you define worship? And some people define worship, well, that's the, the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning. And I thought, wow, can we expand that a little bit? So I said, well, okay, well, it's, it's those songs that we sing plus the sermon that we give. Maybe that combines. And then someone else will say, well, no, I think it's the whole Sunday service. The Sunday service, that's all about worship. And then I say, can we actually, you know, we're going to be spending the next 12 weeks, three hours a week talking about this. You think maybe it's a little bit more, and then we start to tease out, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe we've confined worship in our thinking to 15 minutes during the week when actually worship can become a 24-7 activity. And see, so there's an activity. There are things that we get to do. Um, but but it's actually God's responsibility to bring, to show up, to be present. But then we get to respond to God's presence in our midst. But it's not just, it doesn't need to be just singing. It can be so much more than that. I'm aware of the time and aware of the fact I could talk about this for so much longer. What, what is something you'd like to leave us with this morning, I suppose? I mean, aside from frustrating PhD supervisors. <laughs> It's interesting that Exodus actually builds to a crescendo. And at the end of Exodus, and actually I'll read those few. Once the tabernacle is built and the people have a place to set aside as worship, they recognize that, yeah, this is about worship, but it's about our whole lives together. And so the tabernacle is built, and Exodus 40 ends with this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of the journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. The people are invited to live in a thin space where God is present all the time. And that's what Jesus does for us through the Spirit. So that we're actually invited to participate in the actual communion of the triune God. We're invited right into Christ's life. So that means in Christ, through the Spirit, we can commune with God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, individually and communally. And that's what worship is. And it's that idea of participation. I just, it just, I just have an, ex, an illustration just came to me, and I'm not sure. There's, I think there's some examples of this. But just imagine your best friend. She's been expecting some good news. And one day you're at work and you get this text. It happened. I got the call. I'm so excited. It's amazing. I can't believe it. I'm going to throw a party. And so tonight, 
and here's, here's the, the address, and this is the time. You don't have to do anything, just show up. Okay, so she's taking on responsibility. She's gonna do everything. She's got it all organized. But I can do something. I can go. Now I might say, oh, I'm at work. I'm not suitably dressed. I can't go. Or I can say, you know what? It's not about me, it's about her. I'm just gonna go. And you can say, okay, she doesn't want anything, she doesn't want me to do anything, but on the way, I noticed a mug. And I thought, oh, that mug is just perfect for this thing. So I stop and I buy the mug. And because I'm so excited to get there, I arrive early. And I arrive early and I do help and I do share and I do um, interact with the guests. And once the event is over, I'm so excited to tell the other friends and family who weren't there that I go and share with them. And that's a picture of what worship is like. God set the table, and Jesus talked about this, right? We're invited to a party. God's taken on the responsibility. And we don't have to do anything, but we're invited. Come, show up, participate. And then talk about who God is and what God's doing. Amen. <laughs> um, would you close for us in prayer? Sure. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I pray that this would be a thin space, a place for us today where we can encounter the good, the merciful, the powerful God who has chosen to come to us in Jesus and by your spirit, bring a way forward. And Lord, we confess the number of times throughout our week where we're involved in our own thing and, and following our own ways, and we invite you this coming week to show up and make us aware. And so, Lord, I ask that as we go forward from this place, you would open our eyes to see you at work all around us and to become aware of those thin, thin places and those thin spaces. And Lord, I invite you to touch our ears. Help us hear your words that we might respond. Touch our minds to help us understand and be broadened and think in new ways. Touch our hearts that we might experience your love, your goodness, your joy for those who are rejoicing, and your sadness for those who are lamenting. And Lord, I pray that we would want to participate in the coming of your kingdom for the honor and for the glory of your name. Amen.